0: The short passage we are about to read is one of the best in all of scripture. If you were to shout these words out on the street, there is a chance you could be locked up in a mental ward. There are things lunatics believe if they were not true, but they are true, and they tell us of what God has done for us in Christ, and it is marvelous. You ready? Let's read. Our passage is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ Who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory this is the word of God the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever if we want to know God if we want to know his will if we want to know his way then we must know his word let's pray father in heaven may these words given to us by your servant Paul, have their proper effect. May we delight in them as we rightly should. By your Spirit, may we plumb their depths. And as we do so, may Christ, who is our life, appear to us in glory, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm guessing you're familiar with the Hans Christian Andersen famous, his famous fairy tale, The The Ugly Duckling. I don't have time to read the whole fairy tale, but thankfully, Danny Kay, years ago, sang a song that summarizes the story. Now, I will not sing it. Oh, you want me to? All right, here we go. Just kidding. All right, here we go. There once was an ugly duckling with feathers all stubby and brown. And the other bird said in so many words, Get out of town, get out, get out, get out of town. And he went with a quack and a waddle and a quack in a flurry of eiderdown. That poor little ugly duckling went wandering far and near, but at every place they said to his face, Now get out, get out, get out of here. And he went with a quack and a waddle and a quack and a very unhappy tear. All through the winter time, he hid himself away Ashamed to show his face, afraid of what others might say. All through the winter, in his lonely clump of wheat. Till a flock of swans spied him there, and very soon agreed. You're a very fine swan, indeed. A swan? Me a swan? Oh, go on. And he said, yes, you are a swan. Take a look at yourself in the lake, and you'll see. And he looked, and he saw, and he said, I'm a swan, wee-hee. I'm not such an ugly duckling, no feathers all stubby and brown, for in fact these birds in so many words said, The best in town, the best, the best, the best in town. Not a quack, not a quack, not a waddle or a quack, but a glide and a whistle and a snowy white back and a head so noble and high Say, who's an ugly duckling? Not I. Not I. In writing his letter to the Colossian church, Paul wants the Christians there to realize an important truth. You are no longer ugly ducklings. God has made you to be glorious, majestic swans. So live not like the ducks you once were. Live instead the swan life. Hence our sermon title, The swan life. And if you recall the title of our sermon series, Walking in Faithfulness, that's what this letter is about. Now walking, as you recall, is a metaphor for how we live our lives. Earlier, Paul called this church in Colossians 1 verses 10 to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, the Christian life is similar to the swan life. See, the Christian is now, by God's grace, made to be a glorious swan. But we still live in the dirty duck pond. And that old life as an ugly duckling still clings to us, does it not? But the more we look into the mirror of God's word, the more we see who we really are in Christ. And as we set our hearts and minds on who we now are in Christ, we cannot help but walk in a manner worthy of Christ, holy and pleasing to him. And it feels so good to glide and whistle to the melody of God's grace. The Christian life is about recognizing our true identity in Christ and rejoicing and then seeking that identity to transform us more and more from our duck past into our swan future. And we need this. Because like the ancient church in Colossae, we can so easily find ourselves setting our hearts and minds on things of this earth. We strive to make a name for ourselves, to succeed at life. But so often we are only led further and further away from God and his blessings for us in Christ Jesus. So this passage is meant to show us the amazing reality Of who God has made us to be in Christ that is who we really are by God's grace and from this reality we now desire this new life and purpose here and now Paul makes that point for us by presenting facts and the calling for us then to focus on the facts so Those are our two points this morning. We're going to look at the facts and the focus. The facts and the focus. First, the fact. Just as the fact that the ugly duckling was really a swan changed everything for him, so too there are facts in our passage that when recognized by us change everything for us. The first fact that we need to recognize is this. Paul says, he writes, you have died. There is a death that you have experienced. Paul gives us the basis upon which our lives exist when he writes in Colossians 3.3, for you have died. Isn't it true? One of the worst things you could hear one person say to another is you are dead to me. It means that person is forever cut off, never again to have any influence, never again to be in relationship. Now, in our passage, it's actually a good thing. Christian, listen, you are dead to that old you, that old you who used to live selfishly for your own glory, that old you who denied God, that old you who enjoyed living in the darkness of your sinful nature. That person, says Paul, is dead. It's not the first time in this letter that Paul has said such a thing. In Colossians 2, verses, uh, verse 12, he writes, having been buried with him, that's Christ, in baptism. The imagery is this. Because of the Christian's union with Christ, our old sinful self was mystically killed off on the cross as our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ. And our old dead self was buried in the tomb. Now, Christian, do you see this for yourself? That your old self, that could never please God because it never really desired to please God. That old stuff was killed off when Christ became your Savior. Before coming to faith in Christ, you could not help but sin. It was your nature. Paul tells us the facts, though, that you is dead. Now, not only have you died, but the second fact is that you have been raised. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with christ now paul isn't asking a question if then tells us that there is a consequence to having been raised with christ you have been raised from the dead you have a new life and it is no longer attached to the old you because in some real tangible life-giving way you have been raised with christ in the tomb jesus was suffering the punishment we deserved for our old sinful lives and when he leapt from the grave, he took you and me with him. Which means what? It means we have been liberated. We have been set free. We really have. And what have we been set free from? Well, if you belong to Christ, then you have been set free so that you're no longer in bondage to sin. You've been set free from your old sinful nature. You're no longer under It's dominion, and now you are alive to God. Jesus was speaking the truth in John's gospel when he said, So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Christian, do you see yourself this way? Do you delight that you are now a new creation in Christ? What joy and confidence and hope that instills in us. When we ponder this fact these first two facts are past tense you have died you have been raised it's all been done and not by you or me it's God's gracious work in his son for God's glory and for our benefit this is meant to change how we live in the present how so say you were a convicted felon there are things that by law a convicted felon cannot do in their lives here's a short list of some of the things convicted felons cannot do they cannot vote They cannot do jury duty in many jurisdictions. They lose parental rights in custody hearings often, cannot hold public office, cannot receive grants and benefits, and in some instances, food stamps and social security benefits. They cannot own a firearm. Felons cannot travel overseas in some countries. They cannot return to a job as a teacher, a lawyer, a law enforcement agent. And most recently, a convicted felon cannot receive benefits from the Coronavirus CARES Act. But if a governor or a president pardons you, then the felony record dies and you are raised as a new person. You are no longer a felon. The old you with the old record has died off and you have been raised to new life. You have been set free to live in fullness of life. That, that's what Paul is getting at. You have died, past tense. You've been raised, past tense. Your identity is no longer felon, sinner, but forgiven child of God. That is your status. Now, even though you will have days where you feel like you're an ugly duckling or a felon, you're not. You are, at least in God's eyes, an elegant swan. Now for facts number three and four. Notice they are in the present tense. Fact number three is this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look at the end of verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christian, ponder deeply this amazing fact. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, now what does Paul mean when he says your life is hidden? Well, first, what he does not mean. Paul doesn't mean that we live in hiding from the world, that Christians are to retreat into our holy huddles, biding our time until Jesus returns. No, Jesus said otherwise in Matthew 5 verse 16. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our lives are hidden in the sense that they aren't hidden in the sense that we're hiding out rather they are hidden in two different senses our lives are hidden in that they are one inexplicable and our lives are hidden in that they are secure inexplicable means that to those who are not believers the Christian life is mystifying it's baffling puzzling odd unfathomable peculiar strange leaves people scratching their head People who share not your life in Christ cannot see the life you have. It is hidden from them, not, not so much the things you do. They, they see those, but they are hidden from seeing your spiritual life and your spiritual power. Like a beautiful rose flower whose roots are hidden from sight, the Christian source or su- uh, for sustenance and power is, is hidden. For instance, when you live for God's glory and therefore are kind and loving. The unbeliever will simply think, you're, well, you're just a good person. Little do they know that that is not how you see yourself. You see yourself as a sinner saved by grace and who now lives for God's glory. The good they see in you isn't your goodness, but Christ's work in you. They, they don't get it. They don't see Christ in you. Or for instance, a coworker is mystified that, that you won't go to the strip clubs on business trips. Or your friends roll their eyes at you and you say you will not sleep with that guy. They pressure you to become like an ugly duckling. But you know you are a swan, and swans have been set free from the duck-like living. But all this is hidden from the world. Christian, do you see this? Does this make sense? And those of you who are watching or listening and you're not yet a follower of Christ, does this in some way make sense? You look at Christians and you, you're in some way baffled. Why do they turn the other cheek? Why don't they take the money and run? How is it that they can say so matter-of-factly, I know I'm suffering now, but God is allowing me to suffer in this situation for, for, for my good and for his glory? And so you see Christians acting this way and it's peculiar, it's strange. So the Christian life is hidden in that it is inexplicable. But Paul conveys another reality when he says your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what is it? Your life is hidden in Christ in that it is safe, it's secure. And this only makes sense when you understand how much God treasures you as his child, right? Isn't it true when we care for things, when we consider them valuable, we tuck them away in in safe places? Christian, God has tucked you away into his secure hands. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 10. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That is a fact that changes us. It means that whatever you lose in this life, your possessions, your stocks, your loved ones, your body to disease, your mind to dementia, where your life is hidden with Christ in God. Oh, to know that God loves us so that he has tucked us away into his hands. The fourth fact is also in the present. Christ is your life. Paul begins in verse 4 with these amazing words. When Christ who is your life appears. That's the fourth fact. Christ is your life. Cool, right? I guess. What does it mean to say that Christ is my life? Well, first, it must mean that apart from him, I have no life. Sam Storms writes, Life, both physically and spiritually, finds its source in him and is sustained by him. And so whatever life I now live is not of my own making. Add to this the notion that the Christian's life is so inextricably linked to Christ because we are united with Christ. And so the believer's personal identity is so inextricably wrapped up in who Christ is and what he has accomplished that it simply makes no sense to speak or even conceive of me independently of him. Now, this is an affront to those infected with the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps Western individualism. We crave the limelight. We want recognition for our, our own good work. We, we denounce being utterly dependent upon anyone or anything, including Christ. That is our tendency. But Paul's words refute this. Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I do not live my life through the independent exertion of my will in the pursuit of my goals my life if i dare use such a term is thoroughly through him and sovereignly sustained by him and so consider this point this life god gave you and now upholds for you and energizes for you by his good will your new life has value only so far as it is lived for his glory christian christ is your life Apart from him, you have no life. In him, his divine life is now yours. Has that fact settled in? Christian, <clears throat> Christ is your life now. And that leads us to our final fact. <clears throat> if you notice, the first two were past tense. You have died. You have risen with Christ. Christ. The last two we looked at were in the present tense. Your life is hidden with Christ right now. And Christ is now your life. The last fact is future-oriented. We see it in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so the last fact is this. Who you you really, your, your hidden life, the real you, um, will appear one day when Christ appears. What Paul says here is truly spectacular. When understood, it it makes you giddy. Can this really be true? Is, Is that what my forever future holds? When Paul says we will appear with him in glory, check this out, he's not referring to a place, but an experience. Storms writes, This is the promise of sharing in the glorified life of Christ. It is the promise of the eradication of evil and every fleshly impulse. It is the promise of everlasting deliverance from greed and pride and lust and envy and unforgiveness. It is the promise that our whole being, body, soul, mind, spirit, and affections will experience and forever live in the power and purity of God himself. It's somewhat akin to what Paul had in mind in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, where he declares that when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. John Stott explains it this way. So how will the coming Lord Jesus be glorified in relation to his people? Not among them as if they will be the theater or stadium in which he appears, nor by them as if they will be the spectators, the audience who watch and worship, nor through or by means of them, as if they will be mirrors which reflect his image and glory, although in a sense all those are true, but rather, check this out, but rather in them, as if they will be a filament in a bulb, which itself glows with light and heat when the electric current passes through it. Stott's point is that we will not only witness Christ's glory, we will be enveloped within it, engulfed by its surging splendor and made to be experiential participants of it. One day, oh glorious day, our lives will no longer be hidden with Christ in God but fully and finally and forever seen as we glow with the brightness of his glory for his glory those are the five wonderful facts that Paul wanted the Colossian church to comprehend and meditate upon now why these facts remember Paul's letter is a call to live in a worthy manner to have a Christ like walk and to live in a worthy Christ-like, to live a worthy Christ-like life involves more than knowing the facts, right? We must also have a focus. So now, for the focus. Say you're chilling in your home binge-watching Tiger King and all of a sudden an alien spaceship you see it landing outside. Would you a reach for a handful of Fritos and hit resume on Netflix, or would you, B, run outside seeking to get a a better look at E.T.? My guess is B. You drop your bag of chips, wipe your hands on your shirt, and say, honey, you're not going to believe this. In Colossae, as Paul's letter was read aloud, men and women were caught saying, honey, you're not going to believe this. Claudius, we are not ugly ducklings, we are swans. So let us focus our lives on living like swans. Now, how do we do that? Do we pick up a list of Christian rules to follow? No, we all know how that ends. So then how? Paul's point here is that since our lives are now raised with Christ, we must raise our focus. Paul gives us two commands that describe our new focus. They're two separate commands, but they really go together. See if you can identify them as i read colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 again seek the things that are above where christ is is where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth In verse 1, Paul instructs us to seek things that are above. In verse 2, he says, set your mind on things that are above. These these aren't the same thing. Seeking speaks to our hearts. Setting your mind speaks to our our heads. Now remember, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's not referring to our emotions, like, like wearing your heart on your sleeve. One's heart is the place in you where your longings reside, your passions, your desires, your hopes and dreams that Drive your daily life and so let me ask you if your heart had a compass where would it be pointing would it point up to where Christ is seated at the right hand of God or would it be pointing down to some some idol here on earth if you're like me you have days where it's definitely pointed to Christ but you also have days too many for sure in which it points to treasure here on earth. uh, Legan Duncan presents some good good questions that, that test us. He writes, It is a good test of where we are spiritually that we ask ourselves the fundamental questions. What is the chief aim of my life? For what do I really live? What controls the way I engineer the priorities of my life? The answer to these questions tell me where my heart really is. If I have been raised into this new life, then my affections and desires are focused on Jesus Christ, who is above. It echoes the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is confronting us with the basic choices. Are we to live for this world, or are we to live for the world to come? Are we to live for earthly kingdoms that are perishing, or are we to live for Christ and his kingdom, which has already come and will one day appear fully in glory? Paul presses the facts upon us so that we would be encouraged to seek with our hearts things that are above. And when our hearts come to treasure these things, our minds become set too on things that are above and not things that are on earth. Now, Paul isn't saying don't think about earthly things such as our jobs or families, not at all. He means that we are to think about all these regular earthly realities with the mind of Christ. Paul is pressing us to affirm what Christ affirms and denounce and reject what Christ denounces and rejects. It means Jesus has not only the focus of our hearts, but our minds too. One of the greatest Puritan preachers and teachers of the 17th century was John Owen. One of his books is titled On Spiritual Mindedness. And in that book, he asks a most penetrating question. He asks, What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? The question is disarming, isn't it? When our minds are in neutral, do we find ourselves drifting into thoughts about Jesus Christ? When Paul writes, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, he is concerned um, with us developing a he wants us to develop a spiritual mind or what or, or what we call a mindset it's not so much about intellect it's about having our minds um, focused properly now we need to understand what Paul is not commending he is not promoting the monastic life go hide out in a safe place and pray a lot this is not a call to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. And I'm sure Paul's point in bringing this up isn't because he thinks you and I are at risk for running off to a monastery. When was the last time you thought about that? No, the opposite. Our problem is that we can hear the good news of our new life in Christ and yet persist in being so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly good. We know that Paul is not calling us to a life of asceticism because of what comes right after our passage. In verse 5, Paul lists out numerous things that we are to put to death in our lives. We will cover them next week, but sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetedness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And so to set your heart and mind on things above is a call to live on this earth in the holiness that is already ours in Christ Jesus. When you seek the things that are above, you are seeking what is pleasing to Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you are a Christian, no doubt you can tend to feel guilty. I'm not even close to being the person I know I should be, let alone the person God is calling me to be. Do you ever feel that way? Well, me too. And so what are we to do? Are we to relax and act like holiness doesn't really matter? No. But neither are we to grovel at how we keep on acting like ugly ducklings. What are we to do? Paul's answer is amazing. And we're going to finish on this. Try to wrap your head around this. He says that we are to seek something that is already ours. Think about it usually when you're seeking after something it's something that you don't yet have but the Christian calling is to seek what is already ours once again verse 3 for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God as far as God is concerned that old you is dead Christ is now your life and your life is hidden in Christ And so, listen, the Christian life is about appropriating what is already ours, seeking after it, setting our minds on it. And so it means we seek it with all our hearts. We pray prayers like this, Father, I delight in who you have made me to be. Now, please work in me that which I already am in Christ Jesus. Christian, may we never be content to only wait for the day when Christ appears in glory. But may we long for whatever glory that is now ours in Christ to manifest itself in our lives now. We know that when Christ to us our lives appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. But we cannot wait. Our hearts long for more of the glory of Christ in our lives now. And our minds focus nonstop on walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord because the life of our Lord is ever-present in our lives now. And so the Christian life in its pursuit of a beautiful holiness can simply be described as as a pulling down from heaven that which is already ours in Christ. So this morning we've looked at the facts and we looked at the focus. Isn't God's work for us in Christ Jesus amazing? It seems too good to be true, but it is true. God in his sovereign grace has taken us as ugly ducklings and made us to be glorious swans. And so the Christian life of pursuing holiness isn't about ducks picking up religious rules and promising to abide by them so that they can become swans in God's eyes. No, the Christian life is the realization that we already are swans in God's eyes. And so we delight in this gift and we embrace the facts and we set our hearts and minds on Christ above. And when we do, we find that we stop the waddle and the quack and we start to glide and whistle to the melody of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these amazing facts that are ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you that by our union with Christ, we have died in Christ and have been raised in newness in Christ. Jesus, we pledge our lives to you anew this morning. You are our life, and we are hidden now in you. And we long for the day when we appear with you in glory. Until then, may your glory dwell in us richly. May your light shine through us for your glory. Amen.